Oh, hi, hey, hello. No, please, someone get Rock away from the karaoke machine. No one needs to rock gently tonight. Thank you very much. Welcome to Hollywood Party. I'm glad you made it back. This is our 10th party, which might not be a big deal to you, but we'll use any excuse to celebrate over here. So grab a drink and join the party. Okay, so at our 10th party, we're going to get to know a perfect 10, Lana Turner. And yes, it's Lana, not Lana. She was very particular about it. She was born Julia Jean Turner in Wallace, Idaho on February 8th, 1921. Her mom, Mildred, was 15 when she eloped with her dad, John, who was 24. Lana was six when the family moved to the San Francisco Stockton area of California. Her parents split up, but never divorced. She had to live with other families, sometimes when her mom worked in the city. Lana remembered that they were pretty poor during the depression and sometimes only had milk and crackers to eat. Her dad was a nice man, as she remembered, but he liked to gamble. One night in 1930, he was playing craps and won a nice chunk of money. He told someone at the game that he planned on buying a bicycle for his little girl for Christmas with some of the money. Later that night, John Turner was found dead with his head bashed in. When Lana was 15, they moved to Los Angeles because Mildred had valley fever and needed a drier climate than that of the Bay Area. Lana attended Hollywood High, and one day, about a month after being in town, she decided, eh, I'm gonna skip class and go grab a Coke. So she ran across the Top Hat Cafe, and the soda jerk said that there was a guy at the counter who wanted to talk to her. He knew the guy and said, it's safe. The guy happened to be Billy Wilkerson, the owner of The Hollywood Reporter. He asked her if she'd like to be in the movies, and she responded with, I'll have to ask my mother. Lana was cute, but I don't think I would have seen her at 15 and thought, this girl is gonna be a mega star. I wouldn't have even thought she'd be homecoming queen. Thank God I'm not a talent agent. So she got Wilkerson's card and she came in later that week with her mother's friend. They were sent with a letter of reference to Zeppo Marx, who ran his own talent agency rather than having to perform with his brothers. Zeppo asked her how old she was and she said, 15. No, you're not, you're 18. He assigned her to one of his agents, Henry Wilson. Yep, that same Henry Wilson that discovered Rock Hudson. Lana is gonna overlap with a lot of our previous guests, so this is gonna be a little fun. He couldn't get her a job, so Lana was moved to a different agent who got her into an audition where she was told to lift her skirt, walk around, and turn. Obviously, she was mad and embarrassed and tried not to cry. Her agent got an idea and took her to see director Mervyn Leroy. He gave her a role in They Won't Forget, a pretty accurate title for her. She gave her first $50 a week paycheck to her mom and said, you'll never have to work again. She signed her first contract with Leroy in 1937 when she was almost 16. He said she needed a new name, maybe Lenore or Laureline, what the hell name is that? She was the one who came up with Lana. Billy Wilkerson didn't forget her either. He gave her rave reviews for her tiny part and dubbed her the sweater girl. When she was loaned out to Sam Goldwyn, he insisted she shave off her eyebrows and they never came back. He had a thing about eyebrows. Like he told Lucille Ball she had to do the same thing and again, never grew back. When Lana first started getting fan mail, she was the one who responded to all the letters personally. How much would one of those letters go for right now on eBay? Oh, 
1938, Lana followed Leroy to MGM as his protege. She explained her schedule like this. 6 a.m. makeup, 7 a.m. hair, 9 a.m. rehearsal, then rehearse again with props, retouch face, retouch hair, then finally they could start shooting in the afternoon. I totally get the need for Benzedrine now because there is not enough concealer in the world to make me look like a movie star at 6 a.m. Surprisingly, Lana said that while filming Love Finds Andy Hardy, Mickey Rooney was really nice and didn't try anything with her. I am suspicious of that because he was a major horn dog, but we'll take her take her word on that one. She did tell the director she was sick of being the sweater girl and he was like, okay, cool, cool. We're just gonna put you in a bathing suit now. She was one of the many girls who auditioned for Scarlet in Gone with the Wind. Of course, there's a screen test because George Cukor had not been fired yet and he loved doing them. It's exactly what you would expect from a nervous teenager auditioning for the biggest role in the universe. This is also the same year that she was told to bleach her hair blonde. She was supposed to be an idiot's delight, but ended up having to do surgery, so she was not in that movie. Teenage girls, especially ones that make $100 a week in 1939, like to go out with their girlfriends. Lana said she, Betty Grable, and Mary Carlisle loved to bop around and have lunch at Romanoff's and gossip. Apparently, LB did not like this. He called her into his office with her mother, and he liked to like carry on and go into histrionics when he was giving lectures. So he stood up while giving this lecture to Lana, and he says, the only thing you're interested in is this, and points to his dong. Her mom stood up, yelled at LB, and just took her out of the office. Even with all the dong pointing, Lana renegotiated her contract at the end of the first year at MGM. She demanded her own dressing room while filming These Glamour Girls, and there was a salad named after her at the MGM commissary. She also fell in love with Hollywood lawyer Greg Boutzer. She lost her virginity to him when she was 17. He was 27. Ew. He was totally fine with her limited availability due to her work schedule because he was free to bang other people. He used to take her to parties at Joan Crawford's house, and after dinner, they, the whole crowd would just go into the projection room and watch movies while Joan knitted. One day, Joan gave Lana a call and asked her, come on over, I need to talk to you about something very important. She informed Lana that Greg didn't love her anymore, he hadn't for a long time, but he just hadn't figured out how to get rid of her. Well, that just set Lana off. Get rid of me? Trash is something you get rid of, or a disease you get rid of. I'm not something you get rid of. Joan informed her Greg really loved only her. And Lana dear, why don't you be a good little girl and tell him you're finished, that you know the truth now and it's over. Make it easier on yourself. Lana thanked Joan, left, and called Greg, who of course denied it. And of course, Lana and Joan kept seeing him. She got top billing on Dancing Coed, which featured Artie Shaw. He struck Lana as arrogant and egomaniacal, but she was still seeing Greg, so why would she even think of Artie at all? One evening, Greg invited her and her mom to dinner, but ended up canceling at 6.30 because of a stomach ache. Mm-hmm. The phone rang again, and she was sure it was Greg calling her back. No, it was Artie, and he asked her if she was available for dinner. She left Greg's engagement ring at home and listened to Artie talk about himself and how he wanted to settle down. Then he asks, hey, if I charter a plane tonight, will you come with me? Okay. So they fly to Las Vegas and get married. She was not in love with or physically attracted to Artie. She said maybe she just wanted revenge. She's 18, so duh, she's just making stupid ass choices. 
They get home and Judy Garland is pissed because she was in love with Artie. Betty Grable was getting a divorce so she could be with him, so she's pissed. And Greg is upset, which go cry into Joan Crawford's shoulder pads, I don't care about you. Lana said sex with Artie was meaningless and over in a minute. But he never wanted her or any of his wives to wear nice clothes, heels, or lipstick at home. He wanted them, like, super frumpy. He also married Ava Gardner, so why does he keep marrying glamorous girls when he really just wants Granny Clampett? She knew by the third day that this marriage was in the shits. This guy was super emotionally and verbally abusive and was apparently only nice when he smoked weed. She would make dinners and he would toss them on the floor in front of people and tell her to clean it up. Artie was married like 10 times. How? He was not hot and he was clearly a dick and he was a bad lay. I honestly do not get the appeal of this man. Of course, she got Greg to get her out of this marriage. While on a cruise to Hawaii to decompress from dealing with a douchebag, she found out she was pregnant. She called Artie, and since he's such a nice guy, he said, I don't think I'm actually the father. Well, she wanted a kid, but not his, so she ended up having an abortion, and it was absolutely horrific. I'm not even going to go into it. While filming Ziegfeld Girl, she really started to enjoy acting. Before that, she said it was just a job to get her out of the depression. The bigwigs at MGM wanted her to have a career like Jean Harlow, and they were not pushing for her to be the actress type whatever that meant. In 1941, she's making $1,500 a week and she does her first movie with Clark Gable, Honky Tonk. She said they had a pleasant working relationship but were not close friends. Clark was married, why would she start dating him? Lana also comments that she doubted Carol Lombard believed the gossip about her and Clark. Yet, she goes on to tell a story of Carol showing up on the set to intimidate her. Look, Lana published her autobiography in 1982. At that time, there were still people around who remembered Carol. They also remembered the reason she was rushing home in 1942. There is no way in hell that Lana would have admitted anything, even 40 years later, that would make her look like she would have caused another. Yeah, there's another one. We'll get to it. Death. Remember how Lana said she wouldn't touch Clark because he was married? Well, Lana does Johnny Eager with Robert Taylor, who was also married to Barbara Stanwyck. She said, I wasn't in love with Bob. Not really. Oh, we'd exchange kisses, romantic, passionate kisses, but we'd never been to bed together. Our eyes had, but not our bodies. Mm, okay. Well, Robert asked Barbara for a divorce so he could marry Lana. They ended up divorcing, but Lana hit the brakes on that one. And like everyone else in effing Hollywood, Lana dated Howard Hughes. She said he was nice, but boring, and that he didn't wear underwear and he preferred oral sex. One, I do not care to learn about Howard Hughes. Personally, I do not get the fascination with him. Two, the more I'm forced to learn about him, the more I think this guy is supposed to be a germ freak. He sure does a lot of gross shit for a germaphobe. It's 1942 and Lana started filming Somewhere I'll Find You with Clark Gable. You know what happened in the middle of that shoot? Well, if you don't, go back to the second party with Carol Lombard and you'll find out. Mayer called Lana into his office and says she needs to be very accommodating to Clark. I feel like that was never an issue. And if he asked her to go to dinner, go. Of course he did. She went to his house and said he was very cordial, polished his guns, and it was a one-time occurrence. Dude, they could have never been a legit item. 
Carol's friends would have been out for blood if anything actually happened after her death. She started dating Stephen Crane and they eloped to Las Vegas after dating for three weeks. He told her he was in a tobacco business and once they got married, they lived in Lana's house and he didn't really seem to do much work. She gets pregnant and right after it's announced in the papers, his not so ex-wife comes out and says, oh hey, we have an interlocutory divorce and um, that one year's not up yet. So you're not actually married to Lana Turner. Cool. So Lana kicked him out and got an annulment. Her doctor told her that her white blood cell count was way up and she should get a therapeutic abortion. What the actual hell is that? She had RH negative blood and that causes fetal anemia. So she had a ton of health issues pre and post pregnancy due to all of this. Steven was a major drama queen and he lost control or drove his car off a cliff. Then he OD'd on sleeping pills. So finally Lana's like, fine, I'll take you back. God damn. They remarried on Valentine's day in 1943 and he bought her an eight week old lion cub because who doesn't want one of those when you have a newborn baby? She ended up giving it to MGM for them to use in movies or whatever. Lana gave birth to a little girl, Cheryl, who had to have blood transfusions and stayed in the hospital for a while because of health issues. Lana had to go back to work ASAP because she had to pay the hospital bill since, you know, Stephen wasn't going to. The little family took a trip back to Stephen's hometown and he had given Lana the impression that he came from a wealthy family and had money from a tobacco business. He was middle class and the tobacco business was a pool hall. Between this and the interlocutory divorce, Lana was seeing what a liar he turned out to be. He failed his physical to get into the Navy during the war, so Stephen mostly just hung around Lana's house, gambled her money away, and stayed out late. She came up with a lie on the spot about being in love with some random dude so that they could just get a divorce and he could get out of her house. Honestly, that ended up being the best thing for Stephen because he became a very famous restaurant owner. He's partly to thank for the tiki culture that became part of the 1950s and 60s. He owned the Luau in Beverly Hills, as well as Ports of Call, Stefanino's, and the Contiki chain that were located in all of the Sheraton hotels. I have pictures up on Instagram of the Luau. It was torn down in 1978 and is now like La Perla on Rodeo Drive. It was super kitsch and so cute. So go look at those photos and pour yourself something made of rum. For Lana, stardom meant having an entourage. She had Del Armstrong, her makeup man, Helen Young, her hairdresser, and Alice May, her stand-in. She was also granted the privilege of having a record player on set to help her relax. The costume department at MGM had detailed mannequins for every star with notes of their imperfections. Lana claims that she had the smallest hips on the lot and that Greer Garson had the largest. Why'd she have to say that? What's wrong with Greer Garson? She did not, however, enjoy the hours and hours it took for dress fittings. Irene was a well-known designer at Metro. She made the costumes for Lana's most well-known film, The Postman Always Rings Twice. Irene was apparently an alcoholic and LB told Lana to be patient with her because it's worth it. And Irene ended up jumping to her death from a bathroom window at the Knickerbocker Hotel in 1962. They didn't find her for two days because she landed on an awning. Even though she was totally married at the time of her suicide, 
She had apparently been in love with Gary Cooper, who died the previous year. I'm gonna have to do some more digging on that mess for a different party. Anywho, Lana's favorite club was Ciro's because she could make a grand entrance. There was a long stairway down to the dance floor area and she could blow kisses to whoever she wanted. She loved to wear clingy dresses in white, black, gold, or red. Of course, with a fur, ermine, silver fox, or sable, topped off with a hearty amount of diamonds. Lana looked like a real-life Barbie doll, and not the weird plastic surgery version that people look like now. She just needed a matching Ken. Tyrone Power was the big star over at Fox, and Lana had a huge crush on him. She was free and he was separating from his wife, so she went over to his house and had drinks one night. She was like totally in love with him on the spot, but she was convinced that the studio heads did not want them together. I don't know why. Like, she didn't really give any good reasons. Lana mentioned that sex wasn't fabulous with Ty, but then said this, quote, sex was never with any man, the first thing on my mind. She mentions that she doesn't enjoy sex a lot in this book, but why specifically mention sex with men? Hmm. Even though Ty was a lame lay, she wound up pregnant. He was still getting divorced from his wife and told her to go see some studio head's wife. Lana wouldn't name names, come on, what the F? And the wife told her they didn't have a chance and she would just have to get rid of the baby. You know, it was very common knowledge that Loretta Young had a child out of wedlock and pretended to adopt it. We will go through that story on a different day. So why couldn't Lana do the same thing? Lana ended up doing what the lady said, there was no more child. So Lana threw Ty a $10,000 going away party at the Macombo because he was going on some tour of Europe for two months. She was supposed to meet him in New York City when he came back and she waited there and waited and waited for two weeks. She met up with Frank Sinatra there, they hung out and Tyrone heard that they hung out. So he went to Palm Springs instead of meeting up with her. He was convinced she was cheating with Frank. She flew back to LA and Tyrone said he was in love with Linda Christian and then asked Lana, we can still be friends, can't we? No, dumbass, we cannot. Lana goes back to New York City to get over Ty and meets Bob Topping. He gave her diamond earrings on their first date and was an actual rich dude. His family had money from tin, steel, tobacco, banks, railroads, and his brother owned the Yankees. Bob liked to marry quickly and frequently. He proposed to Lana with a 15 carat diamond ring. She told him, I don't love you. And he said, you will. He kind of sounds a little bit like Osgood Fielding from Some Like It Hot. Lana explained, there's something awfully compelling about a large engagement ring. Since she had eloped both times before, Lana wanted a real wedding. So Billy Wilkerson let them use his Bel Air home for a nice big wedding. And Don Loper designed her champagne lace dress. The morning after their wedding, Hedda Hopper sat on the terrace of their bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel, eating their breakfast, waiting for her exclusive. What a bitch. Lana bought a great big Georgian mansion in Homebly Hills. Of course she had to pay for everything. Bob was rich, but everything was in a trust, so he only had a thousand dollars a month allowance. Besides that, he was a spoiled rich kid and he drank all day and had no ambition to do anything else because he didn't have to. She had another miscarriage and confronted Bob about his drinking. So he got mad and threw Cheryl's dog at Lana. The dog was okay, but like, what? Who throws an animal during a fight? 
So Lana started drinking to keep up with him. Her weight went up, so obviously that had to stop, and he started cheating. He left her when she confronted him. She felt like, oh man, I've had three crap marriages, lost the man I really loved. Basically, I'm a failure and unlovable. So she swallowed a jar of pills and sliced her wrists open. This all happened while a friend was visiting her and she got rushed to the ER in time. If you watch The Merry Widow, she wears an awful lot of bracelets in that film to cover this up. Instead of taking a breather on men, maybe, you know, some me time, finding a new hobby, she starts seeing Fernando Llamas. Mary and Davies held one last gigantic party in 1952. There are photos of Lana, Fernando, Ava Gardner, and Esther Williams all at the same table at the shindig. Lex Barker, an actor, he did like Tarzan stuff, came over and asked Lana to dance. She did. And when they got back to the table, Fernando stood up and said, why don't you just take her out in the bushes and fuck her? Lana had to go to Palm Springs for a week to recover from the beating Fernando gave her that night. So Lana ended up marrying Lex Barker. Fernando ended up marrying Lex's ex-wife, Arlene Dahl. Then he married Esther Williams. Maybe let's try a bigger dating pond than the exact table at this party. So weird. After that infamous party, Lana asked to rent Frank Sinatra's Twin Palms house in Palm Springs for a week. It's still there. It's exactly the same. You can hold events there. It's super cool looking. She shows up to this house with her friend Ben Cole, the same friend who kind of saved her from suicide. This dude definitely deserves vacation. So they open the door and who's in the pool but Ava Gardner. She and Frank's marriage was not great. And she told Lana to stay and they'll just have some drinks. Boom, the door opens up. It's Frank. I bet you two broads have really been cutting me up. Yeah, probably. He and Ava go into the bedroom and really start fighting. Lana's suitcases are in there, but her and Ben are just like, oh, we gotta get out of here, let's go. They come back in the evening and there's cop cars everywhere. The neighbors were like over the racket that they were causing. Ava, Lana, and Ben end up staying at a different rental for that night. Lana says there were rumors about her and Ava being an item. You know, Lana also went out of her way to say she didn't enjoy sex with men. So 30 years after Lana's book comes out, there's another book called Full Service. It's written by an old trick named Scotty Bowers. He says he was hired by the ladies to be with them one night in Palm Springs, just Ava and Lana. That book holds nothing back and it is totally filthy, which does not bother me. Just a warning if you want to read it and make up your own mind about Ava and Lana and what if. So back to Lex Barker. He did some films in Europe for tax purposes and Lana turned down Magambo to go work in Europe for a year as well so she could be with him. She and Lex get married in 1953. Lana was not the most hands-on mom. She always had a nanny plus her own mom to watch Cheryl. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until Cheryl was one year old that they were totally alone together. Plus, Lana had to keep working because she kept choosing loser husbands who refused to pull their own weight. Fun fact, Cheryl went to the same boarding school in Pasadena as Christina Crawford. Cheryl remembered Christina as being very resigned to her fate. I would be too. How are you going to escape Joan Crawford? You can't. One day while swimming with Cheryl, Lex told her that he wanted to teach her about sex because when he was younger, an older lady taught him and he was forever grateful. It started with him exposing himself and groping her. After a while, he started coming into her bedroom and raping her. The worst was the night that Lana miscarried again. Lex came in and basically took it out on Cheryl. She finally told her grandmother who called Lana and told her to get her ass over to her apartment without Lex. 
Cheryl told her mom everything and Lana got her into the doctor the next day. The doctor told Lana Cheryl should have had stitches because it was so bad. Lana went home and sat up all night smoking. When Lex woke up, she didn't even say a word and he started saying, oh, Cheryl's lying. Don't believe her, nothing happened. Come on, that's like 101. You did it, guilty piece of shit. So she kicks him out. In her book, Lana just mentions that Lex cheated on her. Cheryl wrote her own book a few years later and laid it all out there. I need a drink after all that, so let's take a breather and I'll be right back. That same year, a guy named John Steele keeps sending Lana flowers. She finally is like, fine, I will meet you, dude. And in retrospect, she admits to being weak, gullible, and lonely because she doesn't find out his real name until they're having a full-blown affair. That real name is Johnny Stompanato. He was Mickey Cohen's bodyguard. Mickey Cohen was the biggest gangster in LA during this time. He bought Lana jewelry, which she's wearing it in Peyton Place, so just keep your eyes peeled for that, and bought Cheryl a horse just to get on her good side. Lana told him they need to just cool it and slow things down. He said, Lana darling, just try and get away from me. He broke into her house a few times after that, so she went to England to film Another Time, Another Place to just try and get rid of him. She did a pretty shitty job because she kept writing to him and then finally paid for a one-way ticket for him to come see her. Honestly, where are her friends? Why did no one tell her, hey, if you're attracted to some guy, they're probably an awful choice, so do not go out with them. He ended up choking her so hard in England that her maid called Scotland Yard and got him kicked out of the country. Lana keeps writing to him, because why not? And mentions that when she's done with this movie, she's gonna go to Mexico for a vacation. He takes that as an invite. So she has a layover in Denmark and who's at the airport meeting her? Johnny. She said that his passion for her was exciting. He threatened to take care of her mother and Cheryl and pointed a loaded gun at her head multiple times on that vacation. He said, if you're not gonna be with me, you're not gonna be with anyone else. What's with these overly dramatic men she keeps picking? It sounds like very high school, the way they react. She got nominated for an Oscar and she told him, I'm taking Cheryl and my mother, not you, that's that. So all the girls had a great time. Lana knew she was not gonna win and didn't care. She's out of the house, away from that asshole. She got home and Johnny gave her the beating of a lifetime. He told her she was to never leave him out of anything ever again. Cheryl asked her mom, why do you keep going back to him? Why don't you just leave? And Lana said she was afraid. She was afraid of him slicing her face. She was afraid of him kidnapping Cheryl. She was afraid of what the press would say. She truly thought she could get rid of him peacefully. So later that week, Johnny's back to pick another fight and he starts smacking her around. Cheryl hears him say, this time you'll get it. No one will ever look at that pretty face of yours again. Cheryl says she wants to speak to both of them. And Lana says, Let's go back to your room. There's <laughs> nothing to see here. So she hears Cheryl's gold charm bracelet jingle away down the hall. A while later, Cheryl opens the bedroom door. Johnny is walking in front of her towards Lana with his hand up. So Cheryl steps forward and Johnny says, what did you do? Lana thought, Cheryl tried to punch him. No, she stabbed him in a major artery in his stomach with a carving knife. It did not take long for him to die. Lana calls her mom, then she calls the doctor. While Lana's freaking out and being hysterical, Cheryl calls her dad. So grandma, doctor, Stephen Crane all show up. 
Then they call a lawyer, the same guy who represented Errol Flynn in a statutory rape case and Charlie Chaplin in a paternity suit. Then, finally, the cops show up. Lana told the police chief, just tell everyone that I did it. Don't, don't go after Cheryl. The chief said that he knew Cheryl had done it because she took her charm bracelet off in front of the door and left it on the ground so no one could hear her enter. When she went to trial, the court ruled that Cheryl had done justifiable homicide. I'll say it was justifiable. Someone had to end this shit. The entire family had to go under psychiatric care, Cheryl was on probation, and apparently Johnny had a kidney issue that no one knew about and only had months to live anyways. So at 16 years old, Cheryl snuck out one night to see a boyfriend. That caused her to violate her probation, so she had to go to reform school, which she broke out of two times. It makes Cheryl sound like a bad kid, but honestly, she's been through a shit show. Like, this kid needs an actual mother. What is going on? By the time she's out of reform school, Lana was married to another guy, Fred May. While they were dating, Lana opened up his coat closet to put a coat away, and she sees all of the headlines from the Johnny Stompanato case in his closet. Did she not think, hey, this is really effing weird. Maybe I should not date this guy. Nope. She said it was a good marriage, except for the fact that he liked to be on time to things and that she would loan him money so he could buy her gifts. After that, she married again to this guy named Bob Eaton, whom she had to support. I should stop saying that by now. Like, just assume that's the case. During that marriage, she went to Vietnam to perform for the troops and Bob had lots of big parties at the Malibu house while she was away. Her maid kept all of the bedsheets with stains all over them as proof that he cheated. Obviously, divorce. Then she married a nightclub hypnotist. They got married in Vegas, her lucky place. He abandoned her after she wrote him a check for $35,000. That is the end of Lana Turner's marriages. Thank freaking God. After the big trial, she did do a lot of really good movies. She did the Douglas Sirk remake of Imitation of Life. She was a little hesitant to do that because it's about a mom and a daughter who have a kind of a dicey relationship. Kind of a little too close to home on that one. She also did Madam X. Then she did some theater work, some TV shows. She did become religious later in life and her relationship with Cheryl greatly improved. Cheryl went to a hospitality school at Cornell and became her dad's business partner, then had a really successful career in real estate. She and her partner currently live in Palm Springs. For getting a pretty raw deal her entire life, Cheryl turned out to be a really good Hollywood kid. In 1992, Lana was diagnosed with throat cancer. She was able to stop drinking, but she could not stop smoking. If you're a smoker, stop. It's not good for you. What are you doing? She went into remission for a short while. Then it spread to her lungs and jaw. She passed away June 29th, 1995. She was cremated and scattered in Oahu. Now, should she come to our party? Well, I think Lana really needs some good friends. Like, we need to be a voice of reason in her life because what is going on? I will say with all the bad stuff that went on in her life, she was a pretty positive person and pretty chipper to be around. Also, we don't have a lot of girls on our list and we could do a lot worse than Lana Turner. So I think she should come. If you disagree, let me know and we could maybe change things up. Next week, we'll be getting to know a funny lady. So come back and find out who. Thanks for listening to Hollywood Party. For more information about this episode, head over to hollywoodpartypodcast.com and follow us on Instagram. If you like the show, please tell every single person you know. Like and subscribe on Apple Podcast or Spotify or Anchor or however you listen to us. And we'll see you next week. Have that noisy girl.